Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you may turn this morning to 1 Kings chapter 13 as our theme is on the Word of God. Normally we preach, I've been preaching through 1 Kings in the evening, so the mix-up, sorry about the confusion. I'm preaching this evening sermon tonight, so if you want to hear this morning, you've got to come back tonight. I'm filling in for Pastor Dan. He had a busy week, and uh, he and several other uh, of the good men of our church have been doing a lot of work, saving our church a lot of money. Uh, doing remodeling work. So we can all thank him and the men for doing that. John Chrysostom, or Chrysostom, however you pronounce it, that's not his real last name, by the way. That's a nickname that was given to him after he died, right? It means golden mouth. But this particular, I'll just call him John for the sake of simplicity. He lived in the fourth century. He was from the city of Antioch, and he was known as a great preacher. He was a reformer long before we knew about Martin Luther. For much of his preaching ministry, he preached there in Antioch, and on a particular occasion, the citizens of Antioch destroyed a, a statue of the emperor, and everyone was fearful this was going to be bad news. The emperor is going to come and punish us. And John Chrysostom preached eight sermons to address the political crisis, and it actually was used by God to calm the environment in his day. Those messages caught the attention of the higher authorities, and because of that, against his will, John was kidnapped and promoted to be the patriarch of Constantinople. That was the new uh, capital of the Roman Empire at that time, and that, that is modern-day Istanbul. But when John started his pastoral duties in Constantinople, he was immediately out of step with the wealth that surrounded him. The clergy were living in immorality, many of them. He was not very diplomatic. He just simply spoke the word of God, and it offended the empress. There was a big tension between them, and one time she set up a silver statue of herself near the church where he preached. And so he spoke about vanity, and the title of his sermon reminds us of John the Baptist. It was this, again Herodias rages, again she dances, again she seeks the head of John. And he paid a dear price, if you know about his life, how many times he was exiled. In 1 Kings 13, God calls a man of God from Judah to confront a disobedient and sinful king, and announce a message of God's word of judgment. Now, as we look at this text this morning, I want to give an overview summary that Riken gives. It's very helpful so that we don't get sidetracked along the way because we could easily get off on a lot of rabbit trails asking questions about this text. And you'll know why in a moment. Riken summarizes this, and keep this in mind as we go through these, these, these points this morning, Quote, it is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. A brave prophet obeys the command of the Lord, then turns right around and disobeys the very same command. Another old prophet tells a tricky lie, only later to tell the truth. A ferocious lion kills a prophet but refuses to eat him, tamely waiting for the man to be buried instead. At the end of the story, a man asks to be buried with the bones of the man he destroyed with a lie. This passage will naturally, you could easily come up with 20 questions of why did this happen? But the main focus is in the main points, and I've tried to make it as simple as possible. It is about the word of the Lord, God's word. You can, for yourself, look 
nine times we, that is clearly in the text. And if we add the other descriptions of the other wordings, it's well over ten times. This is about the Word of God, and that's what the Reformation was about, wasn't it? Three simple points. The Word of God must be heard, believed, and obeyed. And it occurred to me after I was done with my outline, that's HBO. And I said, well, now I know what HBO means. I hopefully I'll never forget it the rest of my life. God's Word needs to be heard, believed, and obeyed. Let's look at our first thought this morning. The Word of God must be heard. And I put a question in the outline for all of you to ask yourself when you hear the Word of God. Our first question for us to think about, how does God's Word confront error? I'm going to read the first three verses of 1 Kings 3. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who made offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is a sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he gave a wonderful speech. There's a beautiful prayer recorded in Scripture. But on this occasion, Jeroboam, as he's about to dedicate his false temple with his false altar, he never gets an opportunity to do that because this particular altar has no legitimacy before God. It's all false worship. The temple that Solomon built evoked God's blessing, but the shrine of Jeroboam aroused threats from God. If you're wondering why God sent a man of God to speak God's word to a king named Jeroboam, it was because Jeroboam had just started a false religion in Israel. And you can read all about that in the previous chapter. He made two golden calves, and he's repeating the sin of Aaron from Exodus. And he told the people of Israel, Behold your gods who delivered you from Egypt in 1 Kings 12. Now, I believe Jeroboam would have explained everything that he did as being faithful to the worship of God. I think that's how deceptive some of the false worship was in the Old Testament. He would have never said that they're worshiping idols. He said, we are worshiping Yahweh. And even though it was done, perhaps, in the name of the Lord, God did not share Jeroboam's view of worship. Jeroboam went down in history as a great idolater who led other people into that sin. In 1 Kings 12, Jeroboam defied the Lord and established a counterfeit religion. Already in these first three verses, we have read, we read three explicit statements about the word of the Lord. God's word was announced, wasn't it? Jeroboam heard God's word. The phrase, the word of the Lord, is key to this phrase. It's also key to understanding the chapter and the book of Kings. It's critical in our observation of how to make sense of some of the strange and puzzling things that take place in this chapter. Deuteronomy contains perhaps 
a classic statement about the job description of a prophet of God. And a prophet of God was simply to be a mouthpiece, right? Repeat what God has said. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't try to be creative. Just simply communicate the message as God delivered it to his prophet. And that's what God was doing. He was sending a prophet to graciously give Jeroboam another opportunity to repent after he heard the word of God. Suddenly in the midst of this royal liturgical assembly, a man interrupts the ceremony with this bold message of judgment. The man of God seems to appear out of nowhere. The man of God launches in what what many would have sounded like an angry tirade against Jeroboam and the altar. He he speaks to the altar, by the way, not to Jeroboam. That's, That's perhaps as important. The man of God came from Judah to confront King Jeroboam in Bethel Bethel with the all-powerful word of God. And he confronts the king about his involvement publicly in false worship in this non-Mosaic altar with non-Mosaic priest and so on. How did he get past security? We don't know, but he suddenly interrupts this whole ceremony and he he shames Jeroboam in many ways, doesn't he? The man of God was courageous in speaking the word of God to this rebellious Israelite king. The king clearly heard the urgent message of God's word to him. He needed to hear that and the man spoke it. And that word contained at least three things in these verses that we looked at. Number one, the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, and he's prophesying that this altar is going to one day come crashing down, and it's all going to be over. Two, he prophesied that a descendant of David named Josiah. I mean, this is one of the rare examples in the Old Testament where a specific name is given. Josiah will not be born for almost 300 more years. He says, Josiah will come and he's going to take the bones of your fake priest and he's going to burn them on this altar and it's all going to be under God's judgment. The king has no idea when Josiah would be born. David David summarizes one of the authors I read, the significance of the second point, and he says this, A coming descendant of the house of David by the name of Josiah would slaughter the new breed of priest upon it and profane it by offering human bones upon it. You don't do that to an altar, right, described by Moses and Israel, but you do do this to a false, right, tear down the altars when you go into the land of the Canaanites. It's false worship. And third, to authenticate God's word, the message spoken to the king, a sign would be given, this brand new beautiful altar would get a crack in it, and the ashes would come pouring out. All three things are combined, and all three tell the king, your worship is under the judgment of God. You better repent while you still have time, because you just heard the word of God. Jeroboam could never stand before God after he died and said, I didn't know, I thought I was worshiping you in the way that you had instructed us. Jeroboam heard the word of God, and today in the church, the age of the new covenant, hearing God's word is still necessary, isn't it? In Romans, Paul tells us, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Not only do unbelievers who are still separated, they're not joined to Jesus Christ, not only do they need to hear the word of God and the gospel message, but we who have been saved by that same grace, we need to hear it too. Our next question, how did the king respond to God's word? Well, in chapter 11, there was already a prophetic encounter by a prophet that spoke to Jeroboam before he was a king. And at that occasion, he seems to have received part of it fairly well. He was not yet a king, but the prophet spoke to him and said, you are going to be king. God promises that. And now he's a king. But God also used that prophet to say something else to Jeroboam. And he says this in Jeroboam, in, in 1 Kings 11, verses 37 to 38. God says to the prophet, to Jeroboam, If you obey me, I will establish your kingdom. I will build you a dynasty like I am doing to David. That is an astounding promise of blessing to God. God was going to make Jeroboam king whether he agreed with that or not. And he's now a king. But Jeroboam, he has to respond positively to that prophetic word, he must respond with a heart of obedience after he heard that message. So he's already had an encounter with a prophet. This second encounter with the word of God, how will he respond? And there seems to be two or three different responses from Jeroboam, and perhaps they're all really related together very closely. Notice in verses 4 through 5, his first response And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar. Authenticated message right there, right? according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of God. The king's first response to the word of the Lord or to the word of God tells us that he not only heard the message, but he understood the message that was given to him. He knew this was a message of judgment, and his first reaction is to respond to the prophet that is not named or the man of God, arrest him. That royal index finger pointed to arrest him. And at the moment he did that, God caused his hand to shrivel up. He couldn't, it was paralyzed. He couldn't even use it. And then the altar cracks and the ashes spill out. I mean, that alone should have been enough to confirm, look, I better listen to God's word right now and repent. And in faith, call out to God. I should turn to this gracious Lord who has given me another opportunity to believe before it's too late. Jeroboam's response is similar to that of other unbelieving leaders in government when they are attacked or confronted with the truth of God's word. This is something we witness perhaps all throughout history. When the word of God challenges Certain leaders of our world, they try to stop it, don't they? They try to prevent it. There are still countries today that have anti-conversion laws. It is illegal to change the religion that you are born with, and you cannot become a Christian. It's terrible. It's a sinful attempt, like Jeroboam, to prevent 
the hearing and the believing of God's Word. Paul's personal testimony in 2 Timothy, you can bind up, the, the, you can bind up Paul in prison, but he tells us you can never, ever bind the Word of God. No one can ever do that. I can't do it. No human can do that. Paul says there in that passage, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. We cannot chain the word of God. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I mean, Paul has a perspective. Look, you can, you can lock me up in prison, but I'm not too worried about that. You cannot do that to God's powerful word. And leaders throughout history never learn that lesson. When God gave Jeroboam a personal sign of judgment by shriveling his hand, that was like an added extra bonus that he should have, you know, some light should have been going on in his mind up there. What am I doing? When the king suffered that immediate crisis of health, he starts singing a different tune, doesn't he? Suddenly he wants to go to prayer and have the prophet pray for him. Remarkable, isn't it? He begs the man of God to help him. Verse 6, And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. God is a merciful God in the midst of the announcement of judgment. The king has a sudden change of heart. Pray for me. His anger suddenly disappeared as he calls out for help. And so the man of God prayed and God answered the prayer request and immediately heals the king's hand. It's fully restored. This moment in, is perhaps the equivalent of what we call the free offer of the gospel. Today you are hearing something from the Word of God and we know that Jesus Christ and the gospel is the message that all peoples of the world need to hear. And today is another opportunity for you to hear the gospel and to believe in Jesus Christ. Jeroboam heard. He, he has no excuse if he chooses to go on this path of disobedience. He should have turned to God for salvation. Now with a restored hand, the king wants to be a good friend of the prophet. See the change in his life? In verses 7 through 10, And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. I mean, Jer Jeroboam is like a lot of leaders and politicians of the world. He uses religion for self-advancement. Right, to control people. That's what he's doing here. And he simply wants to be friends with a prophet so he can buy him off. Like, what's your price? What can, I, what can I buy you off for? 
You're not that serious about really obeying God's word, are you? I mean, after all, we could be good friends. We could work together. I will give you a reward. I will give you a gift. And aren't you hungry after traveling from Judah? I think that's part of what's going on. He, he's still a corrupt king. In his external behavior of now friendliness, he's simply trying to use this prophet who pleaded with God to have him healed. He is still acting in a very selfish manner. Good for the man of God who followed the word of God. That had been difficult, wouldn't it? Have you ever stood before a king and the king offers you something like that? And you know the pressure that that would have, have been on your life to say no to a king and I'm not going to come home to your royal palace? He left without lunch and he rejected the king's offer of hospitality. The Bible tells us like the Magi in Jesus' day went home by a different route, probably for the sake of his own protection. Jeroboam had set up an altar to try to unify the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, but that altar is now split in two. This indicates he is not going to stand against the Lord or his prophet. Even with this message from God's word, Jeroboam does not return from the way of idolatry. We find that in the last two verses, it's heartbreaking. When Moses destroyed the golden calf, Aaron had enough sense not to remake it. But Jeroboam is defiant. In spite of all of this information and proof from God and the reliability of his word, he rebuilds the altar and continues to worship the golden calves in Bethel. And he wants all of the people in Israel to do the same. When Jeroboam later rebuilt that temple or that altar and, and went back to worship, at that point it is apparently too late. There's no more offers of the gospel uh, for salvation for him. He made the choice to defy God's word. Listen carefully to what one author says about the king's life at this point. It's instructive and it's short. He says, quote, An idolatrous king can pray and be healed, but a healed king who sets his restored hand to rebuild his idols, is a dog returning to his vomit. And he quotes 2 Peter 2, 20-22, and his last state is worse than the first. That's what's happening in his life. Davis helps us to understand that one of the reasons, perhaps, why God forbade the man of God from eating lunch is because refusing that lunch invitation was like an acted-out version of excommunication. You don't fellowship with people that are defying God's word on that level. And so he left. And Paul says something to Christians in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister, if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. In the Bible, maybe not in our culture, but to eat with someone that is living in an unrepentant state of sin against God, it's too closely associated with us condoning their behavior. And so the New Testament says, if you meet someone like that, don't have lunch with them. Fine, you can meet with them. When you meet with them, talk about the real business, not of the Diamondbacks winning, but of your soul. You need to repent of your sin and be brought back into the church. Two, the word of God must be believed. Did the man of God know God's word? 
I'll read 11 through 17 here in a moment. And when I say no there, I mean, did he not understand something? And of course, that's a, that's a leading question because his instructions from God are really simple. They're so simple that I wouldn't even know how to interpret them differently, right? Verse 11 says, Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to the sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree, an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I I may not return with you or go with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place, for it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. He understands the word of God, doesn't he? He knows the word, he knows his commission. It's really simple. It's really hard to mess this one up. There's nothing complicated in terms of how do I interpret that particular Hebrew word. It's all really simple. And notice that after this prophet that we are now introduced to who lives in the vicinity of Bethel, after he confirms the identity of the man of God, his very first question is, come home with me for dinner. He is tempting the man of God, to disobey God's word after he had completed his mission to the king. That should be a red flag for us, a prophet tempting a man of God. Our next question, did the man of God obey God's word? He was given clear instructions on what he was supposed to say, and God gave him clear instructions. Don't eat any food, don't drink any water. Clear instructions, get back home quick. This was not a long walk. It wasn't as if God was trying to test him by saying, how long can he go without water? He could have easily walked home back to Judah after he spoke his message. One of the reasons why I picked Psalm 1 for our scripture reading is because we all start to wonder, why on earth did he need to take a break and sit under the oak? And we're not told, we don't know. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So far, this man's delight has been in the law of the Lord, hasn't it? And on his law, he meditates day and night. Does the description of the man of God stopping to take a break and sitting under the tree, is that simply a description that he is now meditating on his great commission that God had given to him? Thank you, Lord, for protecting me when I went to speak to Jeroboam, and now just bless me as I go home and finally eat dinner as I, as I get back home. We don't know why he stopped. It seems kind of odd. You know, if he wouldn't have stopped, it's very possible that the old prophet would have never caught up with him. But the old prophet did catch up with him, didn't he? And that takes us to our final thought here. The word of God must be obeyed. Did the man of God disobey God's word? 
You already know the answer to that, don't you? In verses 18 through 19, there's real strangeness and puzzlement here. And he said to him, right, the old prophet says to the younger man of God, hey, today's your lucky day. That's a little bit of of an abbreviation there. But I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. I mean, you can get a lot of application out of this particular text in a lot of different directions. He was willing to obey God's word in public, but when it came to his private life, he disobeyed the word of God. I mean, this is speaking to all of us. It's speaking especially to those who preach and teach God's word. This is a very convicting passage for pastors. He lied to him. He tricked him. Why did he do that? The man of God who initially obeyed God's word with courage and with just valiantly in confronting Jeroboam, he ends up disobeying God's word on the way home. So yes, the man of God, he disobeyed God's word at this point. He knew it. It was simple to understand. Moses had already written in the book of Deuteronomy, how do you tell a false prophet from a true prophet? A false prophet comes along and contradicts what God has already revealed. The strangeness of this temptation was that when the old man, the old prophet told him, look, I'm a prophet just like you, and guess what? I have new revelation for you to hear because an angel gave it to me, and God said, do the opposite of what he told you the first time. I mean, this is actually, it's like a no-brainer. We shouldn't have any sympathy or much sympathy with the, the man of God. One author said he, the old prophet flashed his clergy credentials, you know, like the fake police flips or badge up real quick and down so you can't see it. Hey, I'm just like you, and God told me to tell you this. Davis says it was a pure lie, and the man of God fell for it. He shouldn't have fallen for it, should he? He should have automatically known God doesn't give new revelation that contradicts previous revelation. And this is a direct contradiction here. Notice as well that the old prophet based his claim on a message from an angel. Does Paul ever say anything about that? Reformation people? Paul says in Galatians 1.8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If anyone says that Jesus is a different Jesus than what you've heard in this church, that person is pre- preaching a false gospel. Or if they start telling you that you have to do works to be justified, that is clearly a false gospel. Why didn't the man of God at least ask a question before he believed the lie? It's like he believes it without even thinking. And that's part of the mystery of that text, of this text. He could have at least asked a couple of questions. Yes, he should have known better, and so should we when we disobey God's word. We're just like him at times, aren't we? Let's not be too hard on him, because we fall into the same sin in our own life. He knew the word of God. He understood what God's word had said to him. It's really clear And he just chose to believe a lie, and that lie is going to lead to an early and untimely and a violent death. 
because of his disobedience. He should have easily detected this guy is lying to me. He is not speaking from God. And by the way, God is always bigger and better than an angel. If God speaks to this prophet, an angel should not be outranking that. I mentioned earlier that a text like this really really drives home the point hard to any pastor or person who teaches God's Word. There, there was someone who talked to me once about this. Do you practice what you preach or do you preach what you practice? Jesus never had that problem. Sometimes we tell you what God's Word says and, and we ourselves struggle to obey it or we even disobey that Word, don't we? It's a challenging verse for any teacher of God's Word. But of course, this message about hearing, believing, and obeying God's Word, it applies to all of us. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And this man didn't take it, did he? He really has no excuse by being tricked through this lie. He, he, again, he should have known better. Jesus taught us that we can be delivered from our temptations and we can pray that we will be delivered from our temptations and we can pray that prayer every day of our lives. Our last, last question here, how do we understand this ending? Verse 20 through 34, And as they ate at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet the older prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed or defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your father's. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled a donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, people passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it to the city where the old prophet lived. This is the first time that both men are called prophets. As the two men ate the, their dinner together there in Bethel, the prophet that was the, known for his lie suddenly gets a true word from the Lord and he speaks the word of the Lord to the disobedient prophet and he rebukes him and tells him, you're going to suffer judgment for this. If that's not a strange set of circumstances in the Bible, I don't know what is. You're going to have an untimely death. But there is a bigger lesson here for us to stop and think about when we... When we we are tempted to feel sorry for the man of God. And I'll, I'll, I'll state the reason framed as a question. If the man of God who ended up disobeying God's word can suffer under the judgment of God, then guess who else might suffer that didn't listen to the man of God? Jeroboam. And also people like Ahab. He's surrounded by lying prophets, and yet God says, you are still accountable to the word of God. 
we've reached the final scene. The prophet is in the same relation to the man of God as the man of God is to Jeroboam. And as a result, what happens to the man of God serves as simply a warning sign of what is going to happen to Jeroboam. The lying prophet who now speaks the truth tells the man of God that he will not have an honorable burial. The man of God resisted the temptations to not speak God's word to the king. He spoke it clearly, and yet later he fell to a lie and he disobeyed the word of God. One author says, always the church's greatest tests come not from kings who call for imprisonment and torture. The great test arises from lying prophets, from wolfish bishops and priests, pastors and preachers. That's where the danger is often at, isn't it? It's in the church. And of course, this tragic event between the people involved, it simply foreshadows that what's going to happen in this text is going to happen to the nation. Israel and Judah are going to go into an exile of death. Someone greater than them will need to bring them out. A greater word of God needs to deliver them. The unusual and violent death of the man of God was at the hand of God. It's got God's hand written all over it. What kind of a lion that is hungry kills its prey and then stands as guard protecting the body until the prophet shows up? This is not normal, is it? Verse 26, and and when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, it's the man of God who disobeyed, defied the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to the son, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey, and the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones." For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. If this man is a false prophet, he understands this is going to come to pass. And that is why he gave those final instructions to his son. The last two verses summarize the king's response to the word of God. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil ways, but made priest for the high places again from among all the people, and who would he ordain to be priest of the high places? And this thing became sin in the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. What makes those last two verses so tragic Tragic is the news of the man of God's unusual death would have certainly got back to the king. And if that happened, which I believe it did happen, that should have been another sign of confirmation for the king to say, look, I really need to listen to God's word. I really need to believe God's word. And I really need to obey God's word. I need to repent of my sin of false worship. But the king didn't do that. He chose to continue defying the word of God in his life. You know, no one in this chapter obeys God's word perfectly. And there's no example of it, is there? 
Everyone in the chapter disobeys God's word. And all of us are here today. We also have failed to obey God's word in some area of my life. That's not too hard. We could just ask a few questions here this morning and we think about it in our minds and like think about your life in the past week. What, what area of your life did you just like have difficulties with in obeying God's revelation to us? What about our relationships with the people that we are called to love? Isn't that often a common tension in our lives where we just don't follow what God has revealed? The Holy Spirit can... Make your conscience sensitive to apply this to your life this week. All of us have temptations in either our thoughts or our actions. How are you doing in your thought life? Is your sexual appetite at times out of control? Do you entertain thoughts of revenge, anger, envy, or jealousy? Are you using your speech, your tongue to gossip or to bite other people? and a hundred other sanctification issues that challenge us. Can Jesus help us in this area? How can we find hope that we need to help us to grow in this area? And we always believe that Jesus Christ, He is the key answer, He is the fundamental answer to the problems in our lives. Is Jesus the living Word of God? Jesus is not the printed Word of God on the page. He is the living Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later John says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Old Testament Word of the Lord comes to a climactic moment of fulfillment in the incarnation when the Son of God is made flesh for our salvation. Jesus is the personal living Word of God. Maybe this is a good starting point to help us again realize that in Christ, sinners and saints can now hear, believe, and obey the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit that works in us. Was the Son of God sent on a greater mission than the man of God in 1 Kings 13? He was sent to one man in one city. The Son of God was sent to this world from heaven when He came into this world for us and for our salvation. Was Jesus, the Son of God, the true, faithful, and final prophet of God? Yes, he was. Did he fulfill his mission perfectly according to the will of his Father who sent him? Yes, he did. Did Jesus, the living Word of God, ever disobey the Word of God? No, he didn't. Did Jesus, the living Word of God, ever lie? No, he didn't. Is Jesus the real King who came to restore sinners and lead us in true worship? Yes, he is. More than the man of God from Judah, Jesus knew what it was like to be on God's mission and hungry. Jesus was faced with the same temptation to turn and forsake his calling for food and drink. When he was alone in the wilderness, Jesus was invited to dine with the devil rather than to live by the bread of his father's pleasure, Luke 4. In the beginning of the Bible, the first Adam was given certain food restrictions, but he was living in paradise and had plenty to eat. And yet, in the midst of that, he failed miserably. Thank God that a second Adam has come. Jesus in the lonely wilderness resisted this and every other temptation as he resisted the temptation to disobey the Father's word and will for him in his calling by the word of God. And that is why memorizing Scripture as Jesus used in His own temptation can be helpful for us when we face ours. 
Throughout his public ministry, Jesus confronted unbelief and false worship that was found in Israel. He had a situation similar to the man of God. Jesus came to the temple that had been turned into a shrine of unbelief, a den of thieves. And like the man of God from Judah, Jesus disrupted the temple as a sign of the coming judgment upon it and even himself. Because of sin, both temples would be destroyed, but only one temple would be resurrected. Ironically, the fate of Jesus, the faithful prophet, is the same as the fate of the unfaithful man of God. That's the sweetness of the gospel. Both die violent deaths and both are buried in another man's tomb. But at the same time, their deaths are so different. Jesus lived by the word he preached so that when it came time for him to die on the cross, he could make perfect atonement for all our sin. There on the cross, Jesus bore our sin all of our sins of disobeying the word of God so that by his sacrifice for sin, we could be saved and set free to have a longing to obey God's word in our lives. Jesus, who is the living word of God, died a violent death, not being mauled to death by a lion, but something far more shocking. For redemptive reasons that are sometimes hard for us to even understand. In the words of the prophet Isaiah 53, a prophecy about the suffering servant of Jesus, we read this. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. After paying the price of our sin in his suffering and death, Jesus was buried. But on the third day he rose in resurrection power. Earlier I mentioned that Paul testifies you you can bind an apostle, but you cannot bind the word of God. But there at Jesus leading to Calvary, for a moment in time, the living word of God was temporarily bound and killed for our salvation. Yes, the living word of God is help and hope for sometimes God's weary people who find it hard at times to obey God's word. If you're here today and you are hearing God's word about Jesus, then today is another opportunity for salvation in your life. Jeroboam rejected the opportunity God gave to him. Don't follow his example. We warn anyone who has not believed in Jesus Christ that there is a place called hell, that it's eternal, it's real, and it must be terrible. It's the final, unbearable, and eternal expression of God's judgment upon all who die in unbelief apart from Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was baptized, the Father said what? Listen to him. And we've come today to listen to the words of Jesus Christ, who is the living word of God, and we also listen to the word God has revealed to us. Today is another opportunity to confess your sin and believe that Jesus can save you. When you believe in the living word of God, Jesus Christ, you will be given God's grace to obey the word of God and the living word. Come to Jesus Christ today before it is too late. This is why we need Jesus. He is the hope of sinners. He is the living word of God. And because of his work for us and the gift of the Holy Spirit, God aids and empowers us to hear, believe, and obey the word of God. Isaiah and Peter have that phrase, the word of the Lord abides forever. And that word is Jesus Christ who abides forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we have in Scripture. We also thank you for the living word 
Jesus Christ, your Son made incarnate for our salvation. Lord, we need your grace this week to keep hearing your word, to keep believing your word, and to keep obeying your word. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy when we fail. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit and the word that is announced today, you would save sinners from their sin. Lord, bring them into your kingdom so that together we can seek to obey your word and follow your Son. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.